Noise in the Groove, The Origin of Sound Recording. My name is Ramsey Janini, and this is Episode 9, Severed Ears in Quebec. We ended the last episode by listening to a recording of Arthur Sullivan praising Thomas Edison for his wonderful and terrifying new phonographs. We also heard last time that at some point in the mid to late 1880s, Edison turned his attention back to the phonograph after having focused on electric lighting for most of the previous decade. And all of a sudden, sonic boom new phonographs appeared with ingenious mechanisms and amazing capabilities. It seemed to many at the time that once again the world was witnessing and hearing the work of a genius, a master who had turned his attention back to sound recording and in two seconds revolutionized the technology. In print, at least, Edison didn't try all that hard to dispel these rumors, but in reality... Perhaps a key factor in Edison returning to the phonograph when he did was that while he was focused on electric lighting, the Volta Laboratory and Bureau in Washington, D.C. had engineered incredible improvements to his original process. So, what was the Volta Laboratory? It might sound like a 90s industrial rock band, but it wasn't. Although there is a recent D.C.-based electronic music group called the Volta Bureau. I'm happy for them and wish them all the best, but for our purposes, we're going to ignore Deep House for now and instead focus on who they were named after. It's that man again, Alexander Graham Bell, along with his cousin, Chichester Bell, and their finely mustachioed friend from Massachusetts, instrument maker and inventor, Charles Sumner Tainter. The trio established what was originally called the Volta Laboratory in 1880 with the intention of changing the world through the advancement of technology. We've come across Alec, as Alexander Graham Bell was known to his friends and family, a couple of times already in the course of this series. I'm going to refer to him as Alec from now on in this episode, mainly because Alexander Graham Bell is a bit of a mouthful. A few episodes ago, he was a teenager building a talking head with his brother and father, with a personally translated copy of Wolfgang von Kempelen's How to Build a Talking Machine book open beside them. In episode 2, we heard Jonathan Stern's description of an adult Alec training deaf children to speak as if they could hear in efforts to eliminate the use of sign language and eradicate the culture of deafness. These efforts, Stern added, have made Alec something of a villain to many of those proudly involved in deaf culture today. However, Alec himself was someone proudly involved in deaf culture in his day. It was a cause he was deeply committed to. His mother and wife were deaf, and his grandfather, father, and brother all worked in areas related to speech and elocution. Throughout his adult years, for all his many pursuits, he considered himself above all a teacher of the deaf. But we must be wary of making any classic some of his best friends were deaf defense of the man. To borrow from comedian Sean Locke, that's a bit like saying he was a murderer, but some of his best friends were alive. When you hear that he wanted deaf people to be able to communicate without sign language, you might think, well, he was only trying to help. But when you hear about young people in schools inspired by his methods having their hands tied behind their backs, and you read about his devising of what were essentially eugenics programs to rid the world of the so-called malady of deafness, you think more than twice about defending him on these issues at least. Okay, so maybe he wasn't perfect, and his trying to help was for many people probably more along the lines of Darth Vader than Mother Teresa, but let's leave that there, and remember that he did many creative and good things with his life as well. So, who was this guy? He was born in Scotland in 1847. 
He was a naturally curious and intelligent child who loved the natural sciences, but also adored poetry, art, and music from a very early age. For example, at the age of 12, he was playing the piano excellently, but was also inventing and constructing wheat dehusking machines. His mother started going deaf in that same year, and given his personality, along with his family's already existing passion for phonetics and speech, he became deeply invested in studying sound and speech from an early age. Like many great minds, he didn't do that well in organized school, which he attended after having first been homeschooled. He had average grades and a poor attendance record. He wanted to study what he wanted to study, and he wanted to think what he wanted to think. So he left school at 15 and moved to London to live and study with his grandfather. Then began several years of teaching, working, research, and study that led him in and out of interweaving academic and professional paths in Scotland and England. During these years of hard work and study, he and his two younger brothers had all fallen ill. Bell recovered, but his brothers tragically died of tuberculosis. For reasons of health and change, his remaining family up sticks and moved to Canada. Alec was 23, straight floating on a boat on the deep blue sea. In Canada, his health did improve, and along with his father and mother, he continued his adventures in phonetics, sound, language, and quote-unquote helping the deaf. Professionally, he spent many years teaching his father's visible speech system to both teachers and students. The visible speech system was a system of phonetic symbols that indicated how one should use the tongue, mouth, lips, and throat to create particular sounds. In part to demonstrate its versatility, he learned the Mohawk language and applied the visible speech system to it. It was the first time, for better or worse, that the Mohawk language had been put in writing, and for his efforts, the Mohawk people made him an honorary chief. Another of his many claims to fame was that he was a teacher of a young prodigy named Helen Keller. At the age of 13, she was part of the sod-turning ceremonies at Bell's new Volta Bureau building in 1893, the purpose of which was for the increase in diffusion of knowledge relating to the deaf. As I mentioned earlier, the Volta Bureau was formerly the Volta Laboratory, a research team dedicated to improving and creating state-of-the-art technologies. The 12-year-old child in Alec never stopped exploring, dreaming, and inventing. When he wasn't teaching or becoming an honorary Mohawk chief, he would often be in his laboratories, whether in D.C. or in Canada, exploring the frontiers of science. One of his inventions from his time in Canada was an organ that could transmit its music electrically over great distances, like a singing telephone of some sort. Another invention from this time relates to one of this podcast's founding questions. Why is Alexander Graham Bell walking around with a human ear attached to a box? Let's let Alec himself answer the question in his own words, if slightly abridged. Of course, we all know the instrument entitled the phonautograph. There was a cone into which you spoke, which condensed the air from your voice. At the small end of the cone, you had a stretched membrane, which vibrated when a sound was produced, and, in the course of its vibration, it controlled the movement of a long style of wood, about one foot in length and those curves were drawn by the style upon a surface of smoked glass which was dragged rapidly along. I myself uttered the vowels that are here shown. E, A, E, A, A. These vowels were sung at the same pitch and with the same force, but you will observe that each is characterized by a shape of vibration of its own. In fact, when you come to examine the motion of a particle of air, there can be no doubt that every sound is characterized by a particular motion. I attempted to construct one modeled as nearly as possible on the mechanism of the human ear. But upon going to a friend in Boston, 
Dr. Clarence J. Blake, an aurist, he suggested the novel idea of using the human ear itself as a phonograph, and this apparatus we constructed together. It is a human ear. The interior mechanism is exposed, and to a part of it is attached a long style of hay. Upon moistening the membrane and the little bones with a mixture of glycerin and water, the mobility of the parts was restored, and on speaking into the external artificial ear, a vibration was observed, and after many experiments we were able to obtain tracings of the vibration on a sheet of smoked glass drawn rapidly along. Many of those were very beautiful, and I'm sorry I have not any of them here tonight to show you, but as it is foreign to our subject, it is perhaps as well. I would merely direct your attention to the apparatus itself, as it gave me the clue to the present form of the telephone. Act 1. Scene 1. In a restaurant. Alexander Grumbell and Dr. Clarence J. Blake. You want an ear? I can get you an ear, believe me. There are ways, Alec. You don't want to know about it, believe me. Yeah, but Clarence... Hell, I can get you an ear by 3 o'clock this afternoon, with an eardrum. Act 2. Scene 2. In a workshop. Alexander Graham Bell and Dr. Clarence J. Blake open a nice chest containing an excised human ear. Alas, poor cadaver. We have no idea who this person was. It could have been a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy, who carried children on his back a thousand times. And now, here is the ear that heard such wondrous jibes. Where be your jibes now, your gambols, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar? Not one now. Prithee, Clarence, tell me one thing. What's that, my friend? Do you think Alexander looked like this in the earth? Um, who, you? No, the great one, the dead one, you know, um, Macedon. Oh, him. Uh, no, I don't think anyone would have had reason to chop his ear out of his head. To what base uses we once returned, Clarence? Why may not imagination trace the noble dust of Alexander, the other one, till he find it stopping a bunghole? It's most strange indeed, but has not the age of science reversed these trajectories? Alexander and Caesar went from conquering the earth to plugging up bungholes, whereas this body went from an anonymous life, perhaps plugging up bungholes, to having its ear converted into machinery that will conquer the earth. Indeed. The rest is recorded. Right, so we've heard that Bell got the idea from Clarence Blake, who had the ear connections. But Clarence Blake got the idea from a Viennese autologist named Adam Pulitzer. You see, Clarence had been Pulitzer's assistant during the 1860s, a time when Pulitzer was experimenting with Scott's phonograph by using parts of actual human and animal ears. Much of the research was undertaken in the workshop of an instrument maker named Rudolf Koenig, so once again, we have an instrument maker at the heart of acoustic technological developments. A third colleague named August Luquet recorded at various speeds the vibrations of an eardrum responding to a tuning fork. The results of these experiments were published in scientific journals in the 1860s. Patrick Feaster from firstsounds.org found a copy of Luquet's 1862 publication and, with the help of Earl Cornell at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, was able to digitally process the visual vibrations into sound. Let's listen to that recording, and keep in mind that it's an interpretation of sound waves processed by somebody's ear, a person who never heard these sounds because they were already dead. That and their ear had been cut off and turned into a machine by bearded men in white coats. 
You can find the recording we're about to hear and many other wonderful acoustic documents on firstsounds.org, where you can also read about this recording and others in greater detail. Let's return now to Alex's perhaps slightly less original, but no less macabre ear in a box. One of his driving aims for that particular project was to build a machine to hear for deaf children. A machine that would, quote, render visible to the eyes of the deaf the vibrations of air that affect our ears as sound. The project may not have achieved that ambitious goal, but it did further his knowledge and understanding of how sound waves could be transformed into an electrical signal, which in turn could travel incredible distances. As we heard a few minutes ago, it gave him a clue to the form of the telephone. It's interesting that all that while, he, like so many other engineers working with soundwriting technologies, had not thought about the seemingly obvious step of reversing the process of writing sound, of creating Edison's phonograph. However, once he was introduced to the phonograph, he, along with his cousin Chichester and their buddy Charles Sumner Tainter, devoted their collective energies to improving the machine as much as they could. That happened, as I mentioned at the start of the show, at their Volta Laboratory in Washington, D.C. But the phonograph was only one of many projects they undertook in the early 1880s. They were decades ahead of their time with many other related technologies as well. Allow me to list some of their most groundbreaking work from those years in more or less chronological order. In 1880, they began work on an intermittent beam sounder for the generation of pure tones and for use in spectral analyses. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds cool. In the same year, they also worked on what they called a photophone, which was an optical wireless telephone technology that prefigured modern fiber optic communications by a good hundred years or so. The concept of the photophone was to transmit sounds on beams of light, and Bell succeeded in sending a wireless telephone transmission between two buildings 213 meters apart. Well, that's pretty incredible and 1881 was no less revolutionary a year for them. In 1881, they began working on magnetic recording technologies, and by 1886, they had a patent on a magnetic recording process. By that time, they had also invented the world's first tape recorder, but that was non-magnetic. Some 40 years later, these two concepts would be put together to create the first magnetic tapes, a transformative technology that has only recently started to die out. Let's see, what else? Well, there were metal detectors, artificial lungs, and of course, huge improvements to the phonograph. They developed a wax-based cylinder to replace the tinfoil of Edison's original. And to record into the wax, they also revolutionized a stylus by developing a sensitive stylus that chiseled into the wax and engraved its recordings. Edison's original stylus indented its recordings, which was much less precise and not appropriate for wax. Bell and Tainter eventually registered their patent for this method of sound recording in 1886, but by 1881 they had already built working models. As evidence for any future patent disputes, they locked one in a box complete with a recording inside and deposited it at the Smithsonian. The rule was that the box couldn't be opened without the consent of two of the three amigos. But in 1937, in a world on the brink of war, a world that had been transformed by the technologies these men had developed and improved. Only Charles was still alive. Charles asked for the box to be opened by members of Bell's family, and for the recording to be replayed after almost 60 years of silence. It was a machine much like Edison's early phonographs, but the twist with this particular machine is that it reproduced the sound using jets of pressurized air. 
So in that ceremony in 1937, with Bell's family present, the machine was taken out of the box. Everything was set up according to the instructions, and this is what they heard. silence. Well, I think that's a good place to stop for now, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're coming up to the holiday season, and I'm going to be doing a bit of traveling and merrymaking with friends new and old. Therefore, I won't be releasing an episode in two weeks' time, but we'll get back up and running in the new year with more 19th century hijinks and dismembered corpses. Muhahaha. I wish you all happy and safe holidays. As ever, thanks for listening. Please get in touch if you fancy it, and goodbye.